everybody. Welcome to another Psalm session. It's uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. How you doing, Brent? <laughs> I'm good. The, the weather is not so frightful, which is uh, good. We've actually had yeah. pretty mild temperatures so we far. Have, we had the one uh, big snow dump. I actually got to try out my new snowblower, and I broke it the first time I used it. <laughs> hey, everybody listening right now, here's a really fun fact for you. If you've got a, a snowblower, do not suck a uh, rubber mat into it. That doesn't end well for anybody. No, it's, it sounds like that's probably not in the how-to instruction uh, manual. No, I like, didn't know that it was under the snow, and it was like this, uh, I don't know, it had like a ton of holes in it, so it just sucked into the tines, and they all got hooked, and it was a nightmare. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So that was, that's what I did. That was fun. See, you know, it's interesting. Um, I have a snowblower. Yeah. It has sat in my garage for three, almost four years now. Uh, I have never used it, and in <laughs> fact, I find the the I'll call it the art of snuffling, yeah. snuffling, the art of shoveling snow. It's it's kind of therapeutic for me. I actually oh, enjoy okay. it. See, I yeah. I prefer the snowblower, uh, but I've got like two acres that I need to snow blow. So it's yeah. I mean, my driveway is a little smaller. A little yours. bit, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, hey, the Christmas season is upon us. It's uh, we're we're mere weeks away until yeah. Santa Claus climbs on down the chimney have you have you been a good uh, good boy this year brent i'm always a good boy that's i know a given, you right? yeah you definitely you are the uh the jacob marley and i am the scrooge except that you're <laughs> you're alive that's that's, <laughs> you that's in your favor um, i'm glad i'm glad i'm alive <laughs> we I'm glad are. to be alive glad to be alive <laughs> it's uh, it's such a weird year for christmas i mean it's uh, you know, shopping. I know you see online, there's a lot of these movements for like shop local, shop local, but that's not an, as, as easy to do as one would think, uh, considering the state of, you know, lockdowns and red zones and, and just being out in public. It's, it's such a different experience this year. Have you found that yeah. too? Or? Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely have. And it's, it's interesting because I, I am a, a big, uh, not just a believer, but a big doer in, uh, the shop local support mm-hmm. local movement. There's there's a few stores, even a couple of them right in downtown Burlington on Brant Street that I, I frequent. Uh, you know every holiday season, and so accessing those stores and getting what I want from them, it's still going to happen, but yeah. it's just having to happen in a little bit different logistical way. And you know that's juxtaposed with the soft wrap on my front door seemingly every day with, um, you know, a package getting delivered from Amazon or somebody. Yeah. Um, because it's just kind of the way, the way of the world. And you can literally get almost anything you want online now. That's right. That's right. And, and it's funny, you know, even the shop local movement, like, uh, so, you know, my, my wife and I own a store and, uh, she's been doing nothing but deliveries. Like it's, it, she's been crazy busy in person, but delivery, 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 everybody orders online. And, you know, she's, she's become Mrs. Claus. She's driving around everywhere, delivering presents, (laughs) but it is, it's such an odd and it's, it's tough, you know, like, I don't want to be the guy. I know somebody's going to comment on the fact that I said this, but it is so much easier and it's convenient to just log on to Amazon. And honestly, it's cheaper, you know, like if you're looking at that handmade unique item, then yes, please go, go down the street and support them. But you know, when it comes to like, Oh, I want to, I want to buy this, this thing, that thing is probably cheaper and easier to just get on Amazon than to go out and find it. That's yeah. I, I think it's really, it's the, the unique items that you might be searching for. And especially if you have an affinity to some particular stores because there's a relationship there. You've gotten to know uh, the the store owner. Look at at the end of the day, um, convenience and speed and ease are, you know, seemingly more and more the way of the world right now. And that clearly points online, but look, if you just go and buy something, one thing from a local shop, a local independent uh, store owner, then at, at least you're, you're, it's helping, right? You're making yeah. a contribution. Yeah, absolutely. Support local everywhere that you can. And uh, it, it's Christmas, you know, get out there, yeah. give, give back, do what you can be a good person. Don't, uh, you, you know, you, what you have to do, Brent, is you just this time of year, you have to put away all the negativity, you have to put away all the, all the bad things, you have to put your criminal mind to rest 
Ooh, I like what you're <laughs> I like what you're dishing up right there. Oh, <laughs> that was one of my better ones. Oh boy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, on that note, our guest today is somebody that uh I want to say I'm personally excited about because I am, but I know you are as well too, Brent. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak excited. for you. And I'm going to say that we are very excited about our guest today. He is a Juno Award winner. Uh, He is the vocals and keyboard player of the hit band Sticks. He has brought us, like, if I read this whole list of hits, that would take the whole show. But you know him for Cosmetics, Strange Animal, A Criminal Mind, Dancing on My Own Ground, and it just goes on and on and on. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Lawrence Gowan. Lawrence, how are you? How are you, Miles? How are you, Brent? We're, we're I, good. I'm doing really. We're great. We're we're so good. And I, you know, I I, I want to keep calling you sir, and it has nothing to do with age, <laughs> but I feel like you know we're talking to Canadian music royalty. Today, it's true. So it's true. Yeah, I, I sir is okay. It's usually people. <laughs> what what I thought you, usually people stumble over. Is it is it Lawrence? Is it Larry? Is it just Gowan? Is it? But we'll add sir to that list now. Yeah, it's sir. There you go. It's sir. I know, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to I'm gonna take my moment and just say to you, and I, we always say, don't say these things in the podcast, but I am personally, I'm a big fan. I am a big fan. I've seen uh, I've seen you play, I think, five times, three with Sticks and, and twice yourself. Uh, before we were recording, I was attempting to sing Soul's Road to Brent, uh, to which he mm-hmm. said, please don't ever do that again. So... <laughs> 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 no, you keep on doing it. The yeah. whole thing about the whole thing about singing is you got to just keep on doing it. I remember when I was when I was about 16 years old. This is a, a little story I tell quite often. Actually, I, was, I know now I was 15. A, a buddy of mine who had a Les Paul, so luck, luckily, so for sure he was going to be in my band. He lived a few blocks <laughs> away, and I I wanted to join the band. I went over to his house, and he's playing a little bit, and I started singing, you know, in the basement there, and. His mom called him upstairs after about five minutes or so, and she said, Who, "Is that Lawrence Gowan in, in the with you?" And Gary, he goes, "Yeah." She goes, "Yeah, he's he's good on the guitar, but don't let him sing. It's terrible." Right? <laughs> <laughs> so a few months later, this is a, this is absolutely this is this is how it happened. A few months later, Burton Cummings, who's one of my favorite vocalists of all time, yeah, he was doing he was doing kind of a a week where he was helping out a couple of friends of his called McLean and McLean who were a comedy duo playing at the Alma Combo. And although I was 15, my next door neighbor, he was, you know, uh, he said, I know you love Burton Cummings. I want to go see him sing. Just come with me. And, you know, I penciled in a little fake mustache and a hat and all that stuff. And he got me in the door. And as I got in the door, Burton Cummings was right there at the, I've told him this story several times. And I, I think it makes him laugh. Anyway, He's standing by the cigarette machine, and I said, Burton, I, I'm i a really big fan, but i, I got to ask you a question. He goes, yeah, what is it? I said, how do you become a great singer? He goes, geez, I don't know. I sing a lot, I guess. <laughs> and that, so I went home with that as my mantra. For the next five nice. years of my life, I would just sing a lot, I guess. And I just kept doing it. And you, eventually, like anything you keep doing, you just get better at it. So, Miles, yeah. don't listen to Brent. Thank you. Keep singing Soul's Road. <laughs> well, sir, I, I rarely listen to Brent. So that's <laughs> perfect advice. Now, look, you've started telling us about your past. And I want to go back even further because I want to know where it all began. You were, you were born in Glasgow, Scotland. So yeah. who was young Lawrence Gowan? And, and what was your beginning musical journey? Well, okay, so yes, born in Glasgow, Scotland, and then our family, well, just my mom and dad, yeah. <laughs> I'm the eldest, um, uh, and myself came to Canada, actually back then, in the late 50s, my dad came to Canada first for nearly a year, and he was here when I was born, just, just because the way they used to do that back then was try to see if you get yourself established in, in a new country, then you bring your your offspring, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and all that. So that's that's how I, I came here because he he loved Toronto he loved Canada after you know and and he was a sailor so he'd been around the world he'd seen he'd seen everywhere pretty much and uh, and we came here and he and I grew up in Scarborough Ontario Canada yeah and uh, I I you know I loved the place the main thing my my musical beginnings was that you know when I, I constantly wore my maple leaf sweater. You know, up until about the age of eight or so, 
because what happened was the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan one night in, on February the 9th, uh, 1964. And, and the moment I saw, the moment they were introduced, I saw them come on stage. They were maybe 15 seconds, 20 seconds into the first song they sang. And like millions of other musicians around the world today, that was the galvanizing moment that made, that made me go, Oh, I don't know what this is, but this is what I want to do, you know? And from then on, it became, you know, an effort to try try to change my nice tiny little haircut into something that looked like a beetle. (laughs) (laughs) I want uh, I want to ask you about uh, progressive rock as as a musical style. It's it's always been a particular affinity of mine, Um, obviously. Uh, starting with sticks, bands like Yes and Saga, yeah. you know, I, I listen yeah. to that music all the time. What what makes it such a special musical style? What makes it stand out? Well, that's that's a great question, Brent, because the, the, it's it's multifaceted, and that's the whole that's the whole uh, genre. Really, is what it is. It, it it encompasses so much about music and can and can take rock to places that it's never been before, and. Uh, so I'll go to the, I'll continuing on with what Miles was asking. By the time I was about 13, 14 years of age, I began to notice that, that the musicianship in, in rock music was just exploding. You know, you'd, you'd Irish Hendrix and the Beatle, the late Beatle records. And then what, you know, Elton John was just coming out right then. And I noticed that the musicianship in, in rock had gone way up. So I started really digging into uh, classical music, taking going to the Royal Conservatory, mainly because Rick Wakeman and uh, and uh, Elton John, you know, they had gone to the Royal Academy. It's the same same thing in England, as as we know here. When it says Royal, it means, you know, Her Majesty says it, it's good. So um, <laughs> I went there mainly because those musicians in the progressive rock bands, the, the level of musicianship of say Tony Banks and Keith Emerson. And, uh, Rick Wakeman, I, I would include Ian Anderson from Jeff Hotel. Their their playing was so intense that I thought this this goes way beyond what what a regular pop uh, musician is, you know, to my mind. And the songs got deeper and deeper into the theater of the mind that albums like Close to the Edge brought up in my head. I would play that album every day, you know. And I mean, that's a twenty minute song just on side one, and it would take me to places in my mind and, and musical. Um, adventures that I never thought were possible. And that was really where my, my strong affinity for it came. And then coupled with that, I can see that I love the, I love the, the, the ones that really performed as well. So Peter Gabriel up front of Genesis and, and again, I'll mention Ian Anderson, but uh, Rick Wakeman in his cape <laughs> and that whole thing, that, that just sparked my imagination so much. And that's what I wanted to do is play some form of progressive rock and and still put on a great show with it. But by the time I started making records, you know, uh, long songs just weren't getting out there because the long progressive songs weren't reaching people because everything shifted towards television. So I tried to take those progressive rock influences and, and all those great things and, and compress them down into songs that could get played on TV and I could make videos for and uh oh, i didn't answer your question what makes it such a great genre <laughs> i liked your answer <laughs> all of, anyway all yeah. of the above all, all of the of above the, i think yeah. i think that it goes it goes it's it has no limitations to it. it it will go anywhere and yet it still wants to entertain you you know it still wants to t- bring you on this this great larger than life adventure and that's what i i, I think is its greatest strength well, and, and let's talk about your early adventure. So your your first studio album, self-titled Dow, in 1982. Yeah. Now, you had yep. some amazing heavy hitters behind this one. Uh, Rob Freeman producing. Rob's worked with, yep. with Kiss and the Ramones and Twisted Sister, and yep. the list goes on. Uh, our good right. friend, Kim Mitchell, rock and guitar yep. on that album. Yep. How did that album come to be? And was it everything that you hoped for in your, your first solo studio album? Uh well, here's how it came to be. I had a band that was a very progressive rock band, by the way, <laughs> at the end of the '70s, called Rheingold. Yes. And in that band, we played. You know, the club circuit back then. It's hard for young musicians to understand just how phenomenal it was across Canada, where you could make a living, a very decent living, playing just playing clubs because you'd play usually six nights a week, 
You could play for 52 weeks a year. We usually played 51, we took one week off. And you would become, you, you invariably became much better at being on stage because you were playing in front of live audiences every single night for hours. And we, that, that band is really where, where I really learned so, so much of, of, of what it is that I still you know, do to this day. When the first, when, unfortunately, timing is everything in, 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 in the music, in everything in life. And Rheingold came out playing all this progressive rock right at the beginning. The beginning of the band was when disco just hit, yeah. you know, in 1976. And by the, that was the first two and a half years we were fighting that. And by the last two and a half years of the band's existence, the punk explosion from England was so huge in Canada, not, not so much in America, but huge here. And we just were just completely not with the times as far as that, uh, you know, we just, we hadn't, there was no punk rock in us really. Although I really <laughs> admired it. And really, I remember going and seeing Teenage Head and going, oh my God, these guys are having so much fun. Yes. I can't do that kind of music though. It's not my kind, of, it's not what I'm really born to do, but I loved it. And so I actually became pals with Frankie. Um, nice. But when the band broke up, the beginning of the 80s, there was suddenly kind of a, a culmination of a lot of those influences, you know, the dance of disco, progressive rock and punk began to emerge into this new wave thing. And we didn't, they didn't quite know what new wave was yet because you had bands like Loverboy. They were kind of had a bit of that stance, but had very strong pop, you know, sensibility. So when I made my first record, it was, it was in that era, you know, right in that, 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 uh, all those influences were really strong then. But it it failed to be a commercial success. It, it's done really well since then. But I mean, in those the year that that came out, '82, it wasn't a great commercial success. And what I realized was, I think where I let it down was, believe it or not, the video. I thought the video was good. It was you know a boxing ring and keep up the fight and a couple of boxers, and I liked it. <laughs> but I had no, I had no influence on what it was. You know, I really kind of was going along. Because I, in some ways, it wasn't that I was doubting myself. I doubted myself in the video idiom. I, I thought the record was strong, but I, in the video idiom, I was people were grasping with with groping with what what it's going to be. You know, what is this video era is going to be? But the 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 lack of commercial success from that record made me want to dig in and go go back to what Brent was asking about progressive rock. I mm -hmm. thought we got to put something on television that's larger than life the way that progressive rock is. And suddenly you had bands like Duran Duran doing these, you know, on location videos, et cetera. And I thought with a criminal mind, let's do something that's really, really entertaining. And I, I really wanted to make a quite a, a little bit of a darker video than it actually ended up being. But the record company were like, you have to keep it within certain boundaries of, of uh, where you won't get censored off the air because the eighties <laughs> were notorious for that. Right. So I kept leaning it towards the animation, leaning it toward, you know, what I remember of watching the, the Batman series as yeah. a kid, et cetera. And the song suddenly took on a much broader appeal uh, due to that. And when that came on the air, that, that changed everything. But my first album, back to, back to that, I, I'm still very pleased with how that is as a piece of music. And yes, uh, Kim Mitchell, uh, Steve Hogg, who yeah. played Ian Thomas for yeah, a number of years. Yeah. Uh, it was the bass player on there, a drummer named Marty Cordry. And yeah, we made half the record in New York at 52nd Street with Rob Freeman. And yeah, I was I, I thought it was going to um, take over the world. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting. I, I'm sitting here smiling, wondering if you can see my list of questions. because you, <laughs> I, I wanted to talk to you next about music videos, and, and you, you yeah. started to, to allude to that. Um, yeah, Strange Animal and A Criminal Mind, which won a Juno. Congratulations yeah. for that. Um, you. you know, massive video hits um, in an era when MTV and Much Music were really starting to skyrocket. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was really curious to ask you, how important was it to have the music video medium accompany the song? In, in those two particular cases, was it something that you were really embracing and wanted to do, or was it, I need to make videos because, you know, much music is a thing. It was crucial. It was, it was, a, it was a critical factor. 
as to whether people were going to hear your music or not. Quite honestly, if you weren't on television, you weren't on the radio. That's that's how critical it was. And and lack of radio airplay in the 1980s was a road to either obscurity, unless you played in a in a genre like if you played more something like in a metal genre, for example. But even they, even Iron Maiden and the bands that were huge, they still had to get on television, and they did. But it was it was critical, and I entirely embraced it. I had fun doing every single one of them. They were they were challenging to come up with different concepts. Uh, they were also challenging for myself because lyrically, there really weren't obvious love songs or, or songs about subject matter that was common. I mean, a criminal mind and cosmetics to, to some degree, uh, moonlight desires. Although you can bend that into being a love song, but it was, had more to do with, you know. Um, internal, uh, you know, dreams that people, you know, want to follow. Um, those songs needed needed videos, needed visual um, presentations that were really interesting, you know, because you had to pull the listener into the, what the lyric was kind of uh, uh, suggesting. And uh, I, I embraced it wholeheartedly. There was nothing, you know, every time we went to make another one, I was always really excited about it. And let's talk about that album, The uh, Strange Animal. So three yeah. years after your, your <clears throat> debut album, Strange Animal comes out. Great yeah. album. And you had three monster home runs. Criminal Mind has gone platinum since then. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, did, did you think at the time that you were putting together an album that was going to hold up for 35 years plus? Because it does, and it is. And, you know, that's, that's got to be a, there's got to be a lot of pride in that. And, and did you think that's where you were going with it? Here's here's the thing. You, you never really think further ahead than about six months <laughs> when you're when you're working on music. It, it shocks me, you guys, that we're able to talk about this today, this many years later, thirty five years later. Yeah. However, I, I've I've mentioned this before, and I, it, it's a, it's a moment in my life that that is really pivotal. A lot of people know this already. Strange Animal was made at a place called Tittenhurst Park, which is in England, in Ascot, England, and it was the home of John Lennon when he made and he made it recorded Imagine there. So that was his home studio. When I went there in 1984, Ringo Starr owned the house and he lived there and oh, he wow. was there during the making of the entire record. And the, the the studio, it's probably one of the first home studios that was ever built, and it was John Lennon that built it. Or you know, I think he hired people. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it was it was it was hooked onto the kitchen. I mean, you literally walked out of the kitchen straight into the studio. You can see it perfectly in the, the movie um, Imagine. There's a movie of Imagine, and um, all that same gear was there. And I arrived the first day, February the seventh, nineteen eighty four. Exactly twenty years to the day. Exactly twenty years to the day. From the Beatles arriving in North America, I walked in the door and shook hands with Ringo. Answered the door. That's, wow. that's how how <laughs> wow. it was. And he sh shook his hand and he said, "Good luck." And uh, we started making the record. And over the course of the record, he began popping into the studio more and more frequently. You know, and he's very relaxed and just just exactly as you'd imagine him to be. Just a, a great vibe to be around. <laughs> and you know, he keep mentioning sounding good. Sounding good. And then one night, right as we were about to mix the record, he came in about maybe 7.30 at night. We had to stop at 8 p.m. because he wanted the house quiet by that point forward. Came in about 7.30 and I was just in the, playing the piano and he came over and he said, Hey, pal, you know, I mentioned to you that your record was sounding good. It's sounding really, really good. Wow. And I remember thinking, this is, Am I having a dream right now? <laughs> because I, I was so, I'm going to say nervous, but I was really aware of the fact that when I was, when we started the record, I'd be banging away on the songs and the piano and thinking, oh my God, I can hear him behind the kitchen door there. And he's, he's used to having a guy come in and go, I've got a new song today. He goes like this. Hey Jude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, you can hear me behind the wall going, "A criminal mind." <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't help but think, "What is he thinking of this?" Yeah. No, if, if if at all, you know. But wow. um, you know, you mentioned cosmetics. The reason that record starts with cosmetics is 
that was the song he most frequently would pop into the studio. And one time he came in and he said, you know, every time this song starts, we start dancing around. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I thought, okay, that that's going to lead off the album. That's anyway, cool. back to your question. I, I had a, a sense of real confidence when I left there with the record. Um, that, you know, that it's definitely going to resonate with a good number of people. I couldn't imagine, you know, where or how many or that sort of thing, but I, I had a very strong feeling about it. And, um, you know, when it when it took off, I mean, A Criminal Mind became a gold single within three yeah. weeks of its release. <laughs> three weeks wow. of its release. So I knew this is, I'm just going to hang on to this thing and see how far it goes. Nice. And here we are 35 years later still chatting about it. So yeah. it's great. Yeah. Nice. The, the, uh, the, the international uh, nature of, of music is interesting. You know, you're talking about recording uh, overseas in, in uh, Britain uh, and, and other places. There's a really long history of Canadian musicians. Um, I don't know if challenge is the right word, but, you know, facing a, a bit of a, a barrier and, breaking into say the music scene in, in the u.s and and let's take it even yep. further and, and talk sure. in, internationally you know yep. gaining popularity out, outside of canada did, did that really ever matter to you if you achieve commercial success beyond canada how, how did you sort of gauge uh, when you were on the right path and when when you felt you were achieving success sure so that's there are many ways of looking at that, at, at, at addressing that. The first thing is this: you, you talked about what music is. Music is is the most, you know, universal language as we all know. It's it's the it's the form of language we don't understand at all, and yet emotionally makes more difference to our enriches our lives in ways we can't even, you know, uh, we, we can't even verbalize. You know, so. When you when you come up with something, you're really hoping that it communicates. It's communication is what music is at its core. You really hope that it's going to reach someone and make it they can make a connection through it. So you want that's the first level that you want some sort of international, <clears throat> pardon me, international um, recognition. The second level, of course, is monetary because without being able to make a living at it, <laughs> you're going to have to stop doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's that, there's that dimension to it as well. So to, to, to get, to get too overly obsessive as always is if you make any connection at all, anywhere in the world and you're out playing live in front of people, it's hard to get too distracted by the, by the, the, the boundaries of how far it's gone because you're facing a few hundred or a few thousand people a night and seeing big smiles in their faces. And so you don't really focus on it that much. But back then, completely the opposite of our internet world right now, where, you know, back then the, the, the four major labels kept very tight reins on the gates. They were the great gatekeepers of, of music in the world and decided who gets the international release and who does not and for what reasons, because it was a market. So this is the more boring side of that question is that the, the market for music was very controlled. Now it's very difficult to control anything in that regard because the internet is so <laughs> ubiquitous. Uh, you know, guys, the three of us right now, we could come up with a tune, push send, and we just got a worldwide release. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of that is was so foreign just 25 years ago. It just seemed like that 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 can never happen. But uh, so, um, yeah, you you focus on it. Uh, as a big picture thing, but when you're really kind of in the trenches, I'll use that as an analogy of playing music and seeing people react to it. You don't really over focus on that, uh, on that international thing. Yeah, until, absolutely. You know, yeah. So, can I just take a, a, a really brief moment here just to, uh -oh. th this is a, an interesting moment in the show. I, I just want to say that um, Lawrence Gowan just suggested that he collaborate with yeah. Miles and Brent and write a song. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. That's let's, what I heard. Let's just get it done. <laughs> I got it. Here's, here's, yeah. Miles and Brent, Miles and Brent. I wonder where that lousy song went. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that'll, be, uh, that'll be platinum by the end of the week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or something. 
Lords, I'm I'm curious. We you've mentioned you know being in front of the fans and and hundreds or thousands of people and you know so funny enough his name's come up a couple times here. But we asked this question to Kim Mitchell a few months back and and about right. playing you know his standards patio lantern and go for soda versus his new material. And it's interesting too, like when we talk about the internet and music. So I've got I actually have Gowan open on my my Spotify on this other screen here and. It's interesting, right. like, as you scroll through your vast catalog, I think every single album, I go, oh, yeah, that tune. Oh, yeah, that tune. Like, your catalog is huge. So when you're on stage, how do you balance those audience expectations versus wanting to showcase your catalog and, and the pieces that you have written? I mean, I, I, if, I think in Canada, you know, we're all known as being a very polite, kind, generous person. But if I went to a Gowan show and didn't see a criminal mind, I would start a riot. Like, yeah. I, would, I would burn the theater down. Exactly. Good thinking. Good yeah. thinking. Yeah. And I, I, would, I would help you. you know, I'd, I'd, I'd pass the lighter fluid. Um, look, when... For, uh, let's talk about musicians for a second. And Kim, you know, because we know each other yeah. enough, to, I know that we both are inclined this way. As, as a musician, particularly as a songwriter, most often you think the latest song that you've written is the greatest song you've ever written or the worst song you've ever written. But, <laughs> but usually it's the former. You think this is better than anything else I've ever done. Ultimately it's up to the public to tell you <laughs> what your greatest song is. They'll let you know. There's like, there's no, there's no barrier in them, in, in them letting you know that, you know, you might think this is your greatest thing, but all these people love this piece of music. And it comes back to what I was just saying about communication and how it's the connection you're making with music with people. That's the most vital part of it. It is the most rewarding part of all. When I go out to play any show as Gowan, you know, not a stick show, but mm -hmm. a Gowan show, I know that, for example, A Criminal Mind, Strange Animal, Moonlight Desires, Dancing on My Own Ground, those four songs are definitely going to be in the show. And how do I know for sure they have to be? Because all four of them have won what they call a classic award, yeah. which is where, you know, so can the public, right? Yeah. public performance to people. They let you know when a song of yours has been played over 100,000 times wow. across the country. So those four songs qualify. So they fall into a category with all these other great artists like the Guess Who and Joni Mitchell and Gordon Lightfoot and all these great people who've had these classic awards, you know, ah, I've got four songs that are in that elite category. Yeah. I can go out and play those and it's almost impossible that there's going to be people in the audience that don't know those ones. Okay. Right? So yeah. I, I'm going to play them. Then from there on, you really, it's really incumbent upon you just to put on a great show. And that might mean that you play something very obscure you know, to, to most people, you might play something brand new or you might do something that's a complete on the spot improvisation. And as long as, as long as it, it rides within the, the context of the show, it's, you're going to give people their money's worth. That's the other side of it. Nice. I, def, I never want people to leave and go, well, that wasn't worth it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want them leaving going that that was, that wasn't, that wasn't enough. I can't wait till we do this again. Yeah. And, and that's so so that's at the forefront of my mind and that's why i have no problem p playing those songs i'll tell you a funny thing about this year though <laughs> this year because of the lockdown thing one of the things that really struck me was uh, early on people were re requesting far more obscure songs from my record uh -huh. you know, songs that were never singles the ones that weren't singles but over the course of time they have kind of sunk into where they become the favorites of people that happen to like my music and, and have heard enough of, <laughs> of strange animal <laughs> and, you know, go, yeah, I'll, I'll hear that next time I see him, I see him in a show or I'll yeah, hear it on yeah, the radio, yeah. but, but that's not the song I'm going to request. I'm going to request this one, you know, and that came very early in this, in this um, lockdown year where people were asking specifically for those songs. And I began to notice there was a lyrical thread of, songs that were very uplifting or kind of very pensive in a lot of ways, like internal thought um, driven and, uh, and, and revealing. And so I began kind of putting out those songs one at a time. And I found myself going, yeah, you know, these songs exist in the shadows of those other ones. And this is a good time to bring those out of the shadows while we're all living in the shadows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I have a feeling when this is all behind us, 
some of those songs are going to make it into the set list, whereas nice. they wouldn't have otherwise. Nice. Interesting. Interesting. I, I want to ask you, um, you know, we're talking about uh, pandemic and, and lockdown times. You know, obviously uh, having the, the live show experience is, is something that, that everybody's missing. And if, yeah. if I remember correctly, it was just about a year ago, maybe just over a year ago, uh, Canada's Walk of Fame, you performed uh, some Triumph songs with their yeah. induction. That was so fun to to, to watch um, <laughs> on TV. I desperately wanted to find a way to be there and couldn't. <laughs> uh, but man, it was so fun to watch on TV. I, I, I want to ask you about about that experience that that night and more broadly, what what does it mean to to be a part of this? you know, musicians fraternity almost where you're celebrating each other, where you're, you're playing each other's songs, where you, you have these relationships. Really rewarding. I mean, on, on a personal level, it's, first of all, you, you talk about triumph, you know, <laughs> go back to the beginning of this conversation. When I was playing in Rheingold, triumph were playing the same clubs we were, they were, they were doing better at it, you know, because they, they, uh, you know, they were a couple years older and they basically had to, had a, a bit of a head start on the timing of it and were playing just the right kind of music. And so I, I met Rick and, and Mike and Gil back then when they were just, you know, starting it out, you know, and, and again, to see their, to see them rise, to record a couple of my records were done at Metalworks, So I'd see Gil there all the time. Mike Levine actually used to come and see Ryan Gold, and he actually <laughs> became kind of our manager for about two to three weeks before, mm-hmm. because he was so smart. You know, he really understood the music business, and and he he saw Ryan Gold as a, he could see the the potential for that to make it very big, and I guess basically wind up doing you know doing what I wound up doing in the eighties when the band when the band was over, but Mike, you know, was close to us in that way. And Rick, I'd met over the over the many years, many times over the years, you know, at shows and all kinds of things. So when I got a call from those guys, going, we got it, we need someone to do to play the tribute for us because uh, we're getting on Canada's Walk of Fame. I was, I, I leapt at it. I was, all I did was the first thing I, did, I called our sticks manager and said, November twenty three, are we doing anything? He hmm. said, no, he says no, we're stopping this year, like right after we play. <laughs> I have to play our, um, Casino Rama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I think was on like the the fifteenth or sixteenth or something <laughs> like that, and uh, so around there. And yeah, so I got together with uh, with Tim Tim uh, from uh, from the Arkells and uh, my own band. You know, I had a guitarist and my brother, my guitarist Bob, and my brother Terry, and a keyboardist Ryan. And then we got these three ladies great uh, singers that, that sing with the Arkells as well. And uh, we pieced it together at Metalworks and we felt great. And then playing it, you know, it was great to look out into the audience and see, you know, there's Chris Hadfield and there's, you know, the, the world, like all these faces that I've, that, that you know, uh, but most, the biggest kick to me was I'm looking at the three triumph guys and going, they got big grins on their faces and they're on their feet. And, we're playing, and I'm thinking, wasn't it just about a year ago that we were playing in the Gasworks and you were playing at the Piccadilly Tube just down the road, and here we are at this fancy, this fancy soiree. Wow, amazing! All these years amazing. later, singing these songs, I loved it. That's cool. It. So we we are getting close to running out of time, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask. The year is 1999. How does our Canadian treasure get loaned out to an American <laughs> rock band, one of the greatest American rock bands, by the way. How did you come? And I say loaned out because we would never give you away. Uh, how did <laughs> you come to be with Sticks? Okay, uh, I'm, I'm, I keep trying to condense this story, but I'll go really, <laughs> I'll go really quick. Uh, okay, I'll go. I'll go. In, hey, it's your I'm, time. I'll take the okay. forty-five minute version if you want. It's all good. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> here, here it comes. Here it comes. Nineteen ninety-seven. All right. They they built the the new Montreal Forum. The promoter is a guy named Donald K. Donnelly. He's one of the biggest promoters in the history of music, and in particular in Quebec. And Donald uh, called me. I, I had a new record out. He called me and said. 
I got you playing in town uh, at this theater uh, on the same night that I have Sticks coming in uh, in in June, and this was like about six weeks away. He said, "I don't want you to do the theater. I want you to open for Sticks." And I said, ah, "Okay." And he <laughs> says, "Yeah, look, you've played the old Montreal Forum. I did, I'd done it on my own. I did it with Paul Young." And he goes, "This will be. This might be your only chance to play the new one." And I went, yep, for that reason alone, I want to do it. But I said, Donald, it's just me on piano on this tour. It's a solo tour. Like, uh, And he said, I just saw you on TV this morning. Do that. It's going to be fine. When he told Stick's manager, Charlie Brasco, when he told him the guy that's going to open the show in Montreal is just him on a piano, Charlie was like, I got to come and see this because that sounds like a lamb to the slaughter. <laughs> I, had, I had one of those nights on stage <laughs> – I had one of those nights that's just, it's almost like it's beyond scripted because the audience knew all the songs and they were singing along like crazy. And the guys from Sticks, one by one, kept coming out and eventually the whole band was side stage as I was finishing up. And when I came off stage, Thomas Shaw shook my hand and said, we definitely got to tour some more together in the future. Nice. Not knowing what he was saying, but those were the prophetic words. Um, the following year, I was playing at the opening of Princess Diana's Memorial in England mm-hmm. with, the, with, the, with the BBC National Orchestra, the London Symphony mostly, and playing there. And Todd Zuckerman, the drummer from Styx, was on that show because he was hired for the day with another act. I'll tell you who it was later. <laughs> anyway, he came up to me and said, you're the guy that opened for us in, in, in Montreal. Yeah. He goes, ah, man, I hope we get a chance to work together again in the future. <laughs> Six months after that, Okay, we're coming into now 1999. I get a call from JY of Sticks, or James Young, and he says, "Your name keeps coming up because we need a new piano player, singer. Would you would you consider being joining the band?" Wow. And I said, "You know, I, I and I thought at the time I said, you know, for for a legendary act like this to get a chance to play with these guys because I, I oh by the way let me back up their show was spectacular when, yeah. in '97 when I saw them I'd never seen them live yeah they were just so good live they were so good it was it kind of to me it blew the records away in, in a in a way just because the way they connected with their audience and I, I I just thought I would love to play with this band so we went and met and and at first I thought oh so maybe they'll do twenty 30 shows a year and I'll still be able to do, you know, I, <laughs> that year I'd done 140 gallon wow. shows, believe it or not. So I thought, I'll just add that. I'll add that to the pile. It'll be fine. So I went to Tommy Shaw's house and the three of us sang and kind of, it was that moment where everyone looks at each other and you know, it's clicking. And, um, JY stands up and proclaims, <laughs> Let's play a hundred shows a year. <laughs> and the, ma- or the manager there is Charlie's there. And he goes, yeah. And Tommy goes for sure. And Todd's in the room going, this is unreal. <laughs> Let's do it. So suddenly I'm caught in the vortex of that in a, in, in a great way. Cause I'm caught up in the moment. And Tommy goes, uh, he goes, let's play a criminal mind. Let's make it a stick song. <laughs> so I'm like, I was swept up in it. And really the euphoria of the moment, I was like, yeah. And then we went out and played 100 shows. And then the next year, we were offered more and more. And now we're 20 years later, and we've played over 2,000 shows wow. on the band. And, you know, we've played around the world over and over. I mean, just last year, we sold out the London Palladium. Which, yeah. uh, it's an, one, one great feat. After, we've played twice at the Super Bowl. It's one great feat after another. So I, I really missed doing all those live gallon shows, though, I, because that's a different world. Mm-hmm. And... Now I've got, we've struck a really nice balance where I do about 20 gallon shows and about 80 stick shows a year up until the year 2020. (laughs) (laughs) That was, that was our lovely schedule. And the last show, the last gallon show I got to play here was at the Danforth music hall in February. And that's, that seems like a long, long time ago now, but it was so great that we got a chance to do that. And uh, in the meantime, sticks, we finished our new album and it, it comes out, Probably, well, it'll come out when it comes out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah. See. We'll see how things are. And I have, a, and let me just mention this as long as you show. I have yeah. my, a brand new Gowan song came out this morning. Yeah. Uh, which is a Christmas song that kind of is, is reflects on 2020 and looks at how are, how are we going to, you know, 
finish this year off with with a, with a smile on our faces. That's brilliant. Is, is going at yeah. Yeah, I saw that this morning when I was I was getting ready for this, and I had your Spotify open, and I was like, oh, he's he's done a he's done a Christmas song. That's cool. Yeah. And, and then I looked at the yeah. date and went December four twenty two. That's today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. So what what's next for you? What uh, when once the apocalypse is over and, and we're back to yep. the world, what's next? Uh, well, next I'm hoping is to is to get, regain as much of of what we have uh, had to put on hold. Yeah. Uh, for this entire year, that's that's next. But I have a feeling after reading, uh, I just finished reading Fareed Zakaria's um, Ten Lessons for a Post Pandemic World, <laughs> and I, I think that. We've all acquired new skills over this course of this year. Most of them, obviously, like like what we're doing now, most of them are, are technologically inspired or at least accompanied with 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 the technology that we have embraced. I don't think these new skills that we've acquired. I don't think they're going to go away. I think they will be absorbed into the what will be the mm-hmm. the next the next phase of of how to continue in our musical conversation that we have with people, I think we've really enhanced that. We've really found the opportunity in the, in the crisis, you know, by, by doing this. And uh, I've learned this more than anything. Music is a vital force in people's lives. I can't tell you thousands of messages this year from people saying, if it weren't for, for, you know, for having, keeping music alive in their lives, that, that, uh, this would have been one hell of a, a, a far more depressing year than it's already been for people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we, we begin to, we've, we've reset what we really value most highly in our lives. And um, uh, music is right up there at the top of the list. Yeah. I, I'd agree entirely. And it's funny, you know, like Spotify being what it is these days, they send you that annual, here's your year in music. And I looked at mine the other day and it said that I had discovered 734 new artists in 2020 and i was like wow that's a lot of music like yeah yeah compare that to compare that to 2019 yeah the 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 silver lining here is this as much as as much as this year has felt like a punishment to people it's all it was also a gift because you've acquired new things without even knowing it like Look at you. Look at you. You thought you discovered seven new bands. Yeah. 700. 700. It was crazy. <laughs> you it, know, so uh, yeah. those things, those things have happened. You know, those things have happened. I, I spent more time at home this year than I have since I was 19 years old, 18 years old. <laughs> I believe it. So I, I, but, but I've learned to really love that in a whole different way than I, that I never had before, you yeah. know, that I never quite, appreciated to the degree that I do now. Um, my, you know, I, I, I feel the, uh, I'm very aware of the suffering that people have gone through both financially and, and, uh, and definitely physically, you know, because um, I love, I've always worked this into every conversation. My, my da- our daughter is a, is a doctor mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's working in the United States at a hospital there. And so I get my news from her and I know just how, how devastating this year has been and but it's great to see that you know we we now have an appreciation for for medical front, you know as we call them now frontline responders or first yeah. responders we have a, a level of respect and admiration and, and and we bow down to the, down to them as the rock stars of 2020 yep. uh, in a way that we never would have had it not been for this year and that's great that Absolutely. we get to look around and see who 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 really is the who really are the most vital people in our lives and it's really it's it's been great in some respects. Absolutely. Very well said. Very well said. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, folks, we've been talking here with Gowan, Larry, Lawrence Gowan, <laughs> or Sir. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lawrence, we sure do appreciate having you on the show. Um, thank you. That was thoroughly enjoyable. And uh, I'm sorry we took up a lot more time than I said we were going to, but worth okay. every second in, in my opinion. So thank you. No, thank I you. Did. I did. Um, well, absolutely, my great talking to you guys. It really was. I, I'm I'm so happy that we did this. And the uh, yeah, the next thing I got is a big is a big long Zoom call. So that's fine. Hey. I'm glad we spent good time on this. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> great, we'll a, great, uh, a great pleasure to talk with you. Absolutely, good, we'll, good we'll have to, to get you well, on the stage Brent. and uh, yeah. at the Burlington Sound of Music Festival. It it blows my mind that we haven't. So we're going to change that real fast. Long overdue. Long do overdue. All right. Well, thank you so much. We will send you back out into the world. Stay safe. All the best to you and yours. And please let Sticks know that we love them very much.
I will definitely. <laughs> well, thank you, Miles. Thank you, Brent. We'll see you guys somewhere up the road soon. You betcha. Thank Take you. care. Absolutely. Wow. Lawrence friggin' Gowan. <laughs> <laughs> That's one for the memory books. Right? Oh, man. I, uh, it, it, I love it. You know, when we do this show and, and you know, I, I think for me anyway, and I don't know if you feel the same, Brent, but for, for me, when I take a step back from this show and think about, you know, when you and I were sitting in our little 10 by 10 office going, you know, what else can we do? What else can we do? Let's, we need to do more. Let's get out there. Let's, let's engage the musical community and, and, you know, let's throw a podcast together. And I remember both of us were kind of like, oh my God, there are so many podcasts. This is never going to work. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we've been at this over a year now. We, we've had John Oates and, and Kim Mitchell and Biff Naked and Sass Jordan and, you know, Lawrence Gowan is, like you said, he's, he is Canadian rock royalty. Yeah, I, I felt compelled, honestly, to initially refer to him as yeah. Sir, because yeah. it just, he, he, he holds this, you know, place in our music history in this country. And I mean, hey, who, who doesn't remember watching those videos yeah. on MTV and much music? Yeah. Right? You know, and that's, that's the funny thing is, so let me just state for the record that I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed talking to Lawrence. And it, uh, it's funny, you know, cause the, the whole, like never meet your heroes, but I've, I've listened to Gowan since you know, probably the the late eighties, early nineties. And so whenever we do these shows with artists that have played a part in my history, in my musical history, I'm always afraid because it's like, I love their music. I love seeing them live. I love their shows. Oh, I hope this person is not, you know, a total jerk, but <laughs> like that, he was a genuinely great guy and his yeah. stories. I, yeah. I hope everybody listening enjoyed that. I loved those stories uh, yeah, that was cool. I enjoyed that one a lot. Hey man, he, he's, he's hanging out with Ringo Starr and getting a stamp of approval <laughs> from one of the Beatles. Right. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, and he's collaborating with us on a song. So by association, yeah. we are also yeah. collaborating with Ringo Starr is, is yeah. fair to say. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we wrote a song with, with Gowan today. <laughs> we wrote a song with Gowan today. <laughs> well, look, folks, the Christmas season is upon us. And, uh, you know, I can give you a, a little bit of a, a tip here that um, stay tuned on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, we will be announcing a very special uh, Psalm Sessions holiday edition uh, with good friend Canadian crooner, uh, Juno, or not Juno, sorry, a uh, jazz, jazz award winner, uh, Matt Dusk is going to join us for a, an amazing Christmas. He's got a whole Christmas album. Uh, he does Christmas shows. And of course he is the living embodiment of, of Frank Sinatra. So he will be on with us for a Psalm session holiday special on Christmas Eve. So looking forward uh, to that one too. Yeah, yeah. that's going to be awesome. Um, you know, from all of us here at the Sound of Music Festival, uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. But in the meantime, you have a great, safe, happy holiday. Uh, all the best to all of you and a very safe and happy new year. And uh, from us to you, we're signing off.